morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Eric. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here, and I'd like to welcome you to Element. Uh, Aaron's been on vacation. Aaron is uh, the one who does most of the teaching. They've been in uh, Rome, I think, most recently, and we have a picture that we want to show you here. <laughs> this is what happens when you complain about the food. So, anyway, um, I was going to say we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of those, but I only see one, so maybe you already took them. Good. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home. You can have that as our gift to you. We also have scripture notes on all of the communion tables here in these various corners. And if you do have a smartphone, there's an app called Version where you can actually go through the Bible and download the notes. And that's really cool. And it's actually working this week. Last week it had crashed. So we are concluding our long series in the book of Jude that started last week, <laughs> part one. <clears throat> this is now part two. So, before we start, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, Lord, for you have initiated our faith and our salvation, Lord. You have saved us, and you have promised to lead us and to guide us and to keep us until that final day. You will complete the work that you started. As we go through and finish the book of Jude, I pray, Father, that we would hear your voice and your message to us this morning. So uh, we pray that our hearts would be open, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, cell phone's off. That's not mine, is it? Uh, Okay. So if you weren't here last week, we did start the book of Jude, which was written by Jesus' brother. And in part one last week, we looked at how God has passed down to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel of grace that leads to godliness. And we saw that Jude had warned the church about false teachers that were in their midst that were perverting this gospel And they were preaching a false gospel of grace without godliness, which is no gospel at all. And then Judy urged the believers in the church to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And then he goes to great lengths to describe what these ungodly teachers were doing and the inevitable judgment that they would receive. And he referred to several Old Testament examples that his readers would have been familiar with. We looked at how God judged the Israelites in the desert and how he judged the angels who had rebelled and how he judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality and several other examples. And Jude made it perfectly clear that these opponents of the gospel were destined for hell. Now his message was clear. Grace without godliness leads to Gehenna or leads to eternal judgment. And as we're going to see in the second half of his letter, he now turns his attention to believers and how exactly we are to contend for the faith. But before he gets to that, however, he caps his denunciation and his pronouncement of judgment against these false teachers with a prophecy here in Jude 14. So if you have your Bible, we're in Jude, starting in verse 14. Excuse me. That's my water there. 
It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Now, this isn't unusual for a writer to use a, a prophecy to describe what's happening in their midst. But what is unusual is the source here of this prophecy. Jude quotes from the book of First Enoch, which, as I mentioned last week, has never been considered by any religious body, by the Jews or Catholics or Christians. Now, Enoch is a biblical figure that the Jews built a lot of tradition around. And they did that because of his favor with God and because of the fact that the Bible was really kind of silent about him. But we do see glimpses of him. And we see um, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, it says that Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And then the writer of Hebrews expands on that a little bit. In Hebrews 11.5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, outside of Jude, there is no record of any such prophecy attributed to the historical Enoch because it's commonly accepted that first Enoch wasn't even written by Enoch. Now, some in the early church, they struggled with this quote because they felt that it either meant that Enoch should have been included in the canon of Holy Scripture because Jude quotes it here, or that maybe Jude shouldn't be in included in the, in the Scriptures because Jude clearly believed that this message was a prophecy from God. However, Jude never claimed that um, the book of Enoch was inspired Scripture. He never claimed that. He only quotes a source that his listeners would be familiar with and which he knew to be true. Now, this prophecy that um, the Lord would come with you know, thousands upon thousands of his holy ones was made directly by Jesus. And we see that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 31 and, uh, 30 and 31, and in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Now, the Apostle Paul, he also does something similar uh, when he goes to Mars Hill in Athens. And to build a rapport with his Athenian audience, Paul quotes Eratus, one of their own poets, and in Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, neither Paul nor Jude ever intended to teach that the entire work from which they were quoting was inspired scripture, or that they accepted the entire work as being uh, inspired or true. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these quotes or paraphrases have become a part of and should be considered holy scripture. So I go back to verse 14 through 16. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. You kind of get the picture here. He uses a common word there. Why is the Lord coming? Why is he coming? He's coming to judge. And who is he going to judge here? He's going to judge everyone who is ungodly. No unbelieving person will escape. It's almost awkward here how far Jude goes to stress the ungodly character of these people. He uses three different variations of the word ungodly right here in verse 15. So there's no need to guess what his point is here. Now, what are they going to be judged for? Two things. First, they're going to be judged for all the ungodly acts they have done. 
Now, unlike believers where God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, for them no evil action is exempted and nothing wicked will be erased from God's database. And the second thing they're going to be judged for, all of the harsh words that they have spoken against God. Now, Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, he says, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, Jude emphasizes the ungodly speech of these people in verse 16 he, by calling them grumblers here which reminds the readers again of the Israelites who grumbled against God when he brought them out of Egypt and into the desert wilderness. And he says that they were fault finders. They're not joyous or they're not loving, but they were critical and quick to bring up the weaknesses that they saw in other people. And then Jude says that they boast about themselves, which carries this idea of blasphemy where they're actually speaking arrogantly against God himself. And finally, he says that they spoke flattering words and they spoke flattering words to others as a way of fulfilling their own ungodly desires. So now Jude, he turns the focus back onto the believers to whom he's writing. And his purpose here was to encourage them and to instruct them about how to contend for the faith against this onslaught of false teachers in their midst. And some in the church were being influenced by these men actually to the brink of falling away from the faith completely. And we read in verse 17 of Jude, he says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Now a better word for dear friends here is actually the word beloved because it carries and it better conveys the idea of God's love for them. You see, because in God's love for his people, he made sure that they were warned in advance that ungodly false teachers would be coming. So what's the first thing that Jude tells them to do? Remember, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. In the last times, there will be, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Jude says here that the apostles told us they were coming, and now they're here. Here they are. Jude says that they're causing division by influencing some in the church to follow and to believe their godless ways. And then he leaves no doubt here for us that these scoffers, they're not believers. They're not Christians. He says they don't have the spirit. They're natural or they're worldly ones, literally, in the Greek. Now, the Apostle Paul, he made this fact very clear in Romans chapter 8 in verse 9. He said, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So, how do we contend for the faith? The first thing is, we remember God's warnings. We remember God's warnings. And this idea of remembering in the Scriptures, it's not just a mental recollection, like when I remember somebody's name that I had temporarily forgotten about. It includes the will, not just the mind. We are to take it into our heart in such a way that it gets imprinted onto our lives. Now, we need to remember that nothing surprises God because God transcends time. He knows the future. And so we can trust that his words are true and that what he says will come to pass. And like the church that Jude writes to here, we too are living in the last times. 
And we too will also face scoffers and ungodly that will try to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must take these warnings to heart and be prepared for it when it actually happens. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In the Apostle Paul, he gives a similar message when he's uh, saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So we should not be surprised when we encounter scoffers in the church who mock God and his requirements for holy living. You can find plenty of examples of quote-unquote Christian theologians who mock the ideas that Jesus really walked on water or that he really fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And there are more and more today that now twist God's revealed design for marriage and for sexuality in order to accommodate their own ungodly desires. But it's even more common that we will encounter those who will speak piously and spiritually about God and about their faith, but they actually mock him by their behavior, by consistently living in a lifestyle pursued by sin. Now, these people willfully ignore God's requirements for holy living, and they toss aside God's threat of judgment for their actions. So the first thing, how do we contend for the faith? We have to remember God's warnings that there will be scoffers. Let's look at verse 20, Jude verse 20. He says, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now, Jude knows that contending for the faith requires more than just fighting against heretics to preserve the truth of the gospel. It also means fighting our own weaknesses and our own temptations so that we can be strong in our own faith. None of us should take our spiritual condition for granted. So before telling his readers then how to confront those affected by the false teachers, Jude reminds them that they should take a good look at their own condition. And so what does Jude tell his readers to do? Now, this is one case where the NIV, which is a thought-for-thought -thought translation, it uh, doesn't really convey the idea, or it conveys the idea a little differently than the Greek text, or more of a word-for-word -word translation like the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, the, the ESV. Rather than giving three independent commands here to build yourselves up and to pray in the Holy Spirit and to keep yourselves in the love of God, the Greek really has one command or one imperative here which is to keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he describes three different ways in which we do that. This is one of the reasons why we're probably going to be switching to the ESV coming in the spring. And so if you're in need of a new Bible, you may want to consider the ESV. Look at these same verses in the ESV, Jude 20. I think we have it up on the screen. It says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So Jude here tells us the second way that we are to contend for the faith. 
You need to remain in the love of God. Remain in the love of God. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, how do we do this? By building ourselves up in our most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you were here for part one? Okay, a few of you. If you were here for part one, this idea that the believer must remain in or keep themselves in the love of God, it should raise some questions in your mind. As we saw in verse 1, God's love for us is unconditional. And we see that we're loved by God and we're kept by Jesus Christ. And why then are we to exert effort to keep ourselves in the love of God? Here we see the two sides of our salvation represented really, really well. God has done everything that we need in Christ to be saved, yet we must respond if we are to secure our salvation. God keeps us, yet we are to keep ourselves. This is the biblical tension that we find throughout the scriptures between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, I found it interesting that there were more than a few people that came up to me after the service last week and asked me if I thought that a Christian could lose their salvation. And I said, no, absolutely not. I didn't say that. I feel that the scripture clearly teaches that a believer cannot, true believer cannot lose their salvation. Yet, as we saw last week, the scripture is also very clear about our responsibility to grow in grace and godliness until that final day of the Lord. Now, their questions tell me, though, that they got the message. They got the message, and they had to wrestle with it, and they had to reconcile it in their own mind. Now, this is what we call a paradox. And a paradox, it's a combination of two thoughts that seem to contradict one another. And there are several examples of this in the Scripture. It seems impossible for us to harmonize in our minds these two facets of biblical truth. Yet we have to believe that both are true because both are taught in the Bible. And if we want to understand the Scriptures, then we have to accept the concept of the paradox. Because believing that you know, what we can't square in our own finite minds is somehow harmonized in the mind of God. Now, in this world, we will have you know, more trials and temptations than you can shake a stick at. And our own flesh is constantly trying to drag us back to that old way of life. And Jude tells us that God in His grace exerts His power daily to keep us and to help us to resist these forces. But we cannot presume on God's power. We are responsible to take advantage of what he offers us. Now Jude, he may be thinking of John or maybe thinking of Jesus and what he said in John chapter 15 in verse 9. Jesus said this, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Jesus loves us unconditionally. We know that. Yet we are to remain in his love for us. Now, this is especially appropriate here in Jude because uh, you know, Jude is writing about these false teachers and this is exactly where they failed here. He, uh, Jesus goes on in verse 10 and, and he says, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. The false teachers did not obey Jesus' command and that's how they failed. So how does Jude say that we are to remain in God's love? First, he tells us that we remain in God's love by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Building ourselves up in our most holy faith. This is the faith, again, that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ which leads to godliness. And he says it's holy. 
And it's holy because it comes from God, who is holy. But before we can actually build up, we have to make sure that we have a secure foundation. And Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says that no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, the first way believers build themselves up, it's by growing in their understanding of the gospel, by growing in their understanding of the gospel. Christian growth, it occurs through the mind as believers grow in their understanding of God's word. You know, someone has says that you can never grow away from your roots. You can only grow through them. And a solid understanding of Christian doctrine, the kind that actually changes the heart and the mind, is something that we can never grow away from. When Paul was giving his final words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, after warning them to be on guard against these wolves that would be rising up, he summed up his exhortation by saying this in Acts 20, verse 32. He said, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's the word of God that builds us up. Now, the second way the believers are to build themselves up in their faith is through mutual encouragement, through mutual encouragement. This is what most of us would call fellowship, where we urge one another to hold fast to the truth of Christ and to maintain a lifestyle that reflects that truth. This imagery of building up uh, to describe the spiritual growth of the community, it comes from the idea that Christ's church actually forms God's new temple. And we see an example of that in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jude is urging believers here to be engaged in real fellowship. You see, the scriptures, they clearly teach that spiritual experience is never purely an individual matter. God always works within and through a people. And the point is here that we're just not to see to it that our own experience with Christ is growing, but we're to make sure that the church, that the body of Christ is growing and is becoming stronger. And ultimately, we will only be able to grow as we should if we fully participate in the life of the church. None of us can be mature in our faith without the encouragement and without the advice and without the accountability of fellow believers. This is one of the reasons why we strongly encourage every single person to be plugged in to a gospel community group. This is how we grow. This is how we build ourselves up. Now, the second way we remain in God's love is we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. He says that we pray in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Some would say that Jude here is referring to praying by speaking in tongues. But that's really doubtful here. I mean, there's no reason to think that Jude is being that specific. All praying that is worthy of the name is praying that is done in the Holy Spirit. Um, what does that mean, to pray in the Holy Spirit? It means that you are to be stimulated by, to be guided by, and to be infused by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in Ephesians 6.18, he said, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
And the context here clarifies that speaking in tongues was not his primary view. Paul is requesting that believers pray to further the gospel and that God would supply the right words at the right time and the courage that was needed to actually proclaim it. This is a reminder that we are to be dependent upon the Lord and that we can't have a relationship with God without nurturing that in prayer. We're completely dependent upon Him. So praying in the Holy Spirit is to pray consistently with the will of the Spirit. Praying yielded to the Holy Spirit. Praying that the will of the Father and that the will of the Spirit and that the will of the Son be done. Praying consistently with God's will. And when we pray like this, when we pray in the Holy Spirit, we remain in God's love. Now, the third way that we remain in God's love, he says, is by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, this will be the final mercy of all mercies. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that will bring us eternal life. The Apostle John tells us that this is a purifying hope. He says in in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And we remember what Paul told Titus, that we are to wait for this blessed hope, he said, the glorious appearing of our great God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we wait eagerly in anticipation, in hope, we remember that it's only because of God's great mercy that we will receive eternal life. Now, Jude clearly taught that believers must remain in God's love until the very end to see their final salvation. But he didn't teach that we would be perfect in this world, and therefore we will need Christ's mercy on that last day. He says that we need to remain in God's love by waiting eagerly for Christ's return. We can't keep ourselves in the love of God if we immerse ourselves in this world to the point where we cease to long for that future day where we are perfected in Christ. We remain in God's love then as we continue to long for the day when Jesus will show us his mercy, when he will grant us the gift of eternal life in all of its fullness, when we finally see that day when we are perfected forever. So, We look at verse 22. He goes on and he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. The third way that believers are to contend for the faith then is by reaching out, by reaching out in mercy to those who are in error. Now, we saw in verse 19 that these false teachers, they were dividing the church and they were persuading some to believe in their teachings and to follow their godless lifestyle. And Jude tells the faithful believers here how they should respond to others in the church who were being affected by these opponents. And so he calls on the faithful then to reach out, to reach out with mercy with the true gospel to those who are being affected. And he says that there are basically three types of people here that need to be addressed. First, there are those who doubt. There are those who doubt or they waver in their commitment to the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. They're confused and they're beginning to fall under the sway of these false teachers. And Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. Don't reject them. Don't ignore them. 
They take time and they take patience and it's tempting sometimes to just give up on these people. They're often young in their faith and they're not solidly rooted in their understanding of the gospel. Some, however, may be further along in their faith, but maybe they're really heavily tempted by the sins of the flesh. And just as believers have received God's unmerited mercy, they too are to display a similar mercy to those who doubt and to those who waver. For mercy is far more likely to keep them within the fold of the gospel than a harsh rebuke. And then there's a second group of people. He says, next, uh, there's others who are in greater danger of actually being captured by the teaching and the behavior of these opponents. He says um, that they may be starting to embrace the actual theology or the ungodly behavior of these false teachers. And they're just starting to actually get singed. We get this picture. Jude says that the faithful need to reach out and they need to save them by snatching them out of the fire. Now, Jude probably gets this imagery here from the Old Testament book of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And it says this, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And, he said, and, the, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Joshua, the high priest here, was destined for the fire because of his sin that was illustrated here by his filthy garments. And then the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus, says to Satan, Is this not a brand that was plucked from the fire? He then removes Joshua's filthy garments, and he gives him clean ones. And this symbolizes the forgiveness of his sins. God's mercy and God's grace snatched him from the fire by cleansing him of his sin. And Jude says that the faithful are to play a similar role in the lives of those who are influenced by these false teachers. Believers should be the instruments that God uses to save those that have been seduced by snatching them out of the fire. He says that there's still hope for them. They can still be rescued from judgment. They can still be restored to a right relationship with God. And then lastly, he talks about a third group of people here. Jude says that there are others that must be shown mercy mixed with fear, hating even the, the clothing stained with corrupted flesh. These are those who have actually given their allegiance to these false teachers, and it may even include some of the false teachers themselves. He says that believers are to show mercy even to those who are deeply ensnared in sin and in error. Rather than despise them, the faithful are to have mercy on them. And most likely here he's thinking of prayer or intercession for them. Every, even those who have abandoned themselves to the false teaching, they're not completely beyond redemption. And Jude wants to believe, the believers here to continue to intercede for them. But his mercy, he said, should be tempered by fear and even hatred, knowing that sin had defiled these people in such a terrible, terrible way. While showing mercy, believers need to be cautious. They need to have a healthy fear that they too are not contaminated by the false teaching. They should actually be disgusted with the sin of these false teachers, and they should see it for what it truly is. Going back to that imagery from Zechariah in chapter 3, 
When he says, you know, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, Joshua's filthy garments represented his sin. And that refers literally to his inner garment or his underwear that was stained with human excrement. I mean, it's, it's, it should be repulsive. It should be nauseating to the believer. And so Jude says here that there needs to be a balance between showing mercy and maintaining purity. Showing love for the sinner doesn't exclude a hatred for the corruption that's brought about by sin. And so the third way believers contend for the faith is by reaching out in mercy to those who are in error. And then we get to verse 24. Jude says, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Now we saw that Jude started his letter by telling his readers that they have been called by God and that they have been loved by God the Father and that they are kept by Jesus Christ. He starts by pointing out that their salvation from beginning to end is the result of God's gracious working in their life. And then Jude urges the faithful to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. But as we see throughout the rest of the letter, God does not do the believing for us. He doesn't do the believing for us. We are responsible to remember his warnings and to remain in his love and to reach out to those in error. Now, in one of the most famous doxologies to be found in the Bible, he ends his letter by bringing us back to where he started, by pointing to God, who alone deserves the glory for our salvation. Now, when Jude says that he is able to keep you from falling here, he's not saying that he might keep you from falling. He's saying here the idea is that he will keep you from falling by his grace and by his power. And falling in this context doesn't mean that you will never fall into sin. It means that he's able to keep you from falling away completely so that you are not lost forever. God promises to preserve us from abandoning the faith once for all. And not only is he able to keep us from falling, but the other side of that coin is that God is able to present us in his presence, in his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. God will make sure that we can stand in the presence of Christ on that final day, blameless and joyful. This is when that final mercy of Christ, with, with which we've been eagerly waiting for, will be displayed in each of us forever. So Jude, he begins his letter with the security of our salvation in Christ. And now he ends his letter with the security of our salvation in Christ. And there's only one reason why our salvation as believers, is so, is so certain and so secure. And it's because He, because God is able to keep us from falling and to present us before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Which brings me to the last thing that we need to do to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We need to rest. We need to rest in the assurance of our salvation. We rest in God's ability to save us completely. We rest knowing that He will keep us from falling away from Him. We, we rest knowing that Jesus will never let anyone snatch us out of His hand. And we rest because the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of salvation and redemption. And we rest, finally, not because of how strongly we're holding on to God, but because of how strong God is holding on to us. And so to close... It can't be said really any better 
than the way Jude put it here. So I'm not even going to try. We look at verse 25. He says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The band's going to come back up as we go to communion and Hopefully this will be a time of reflection for each of us. We remember the mercy of Christ and we remember his gift to us when he came and his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And as we take that cracker and we break it, we remember his body that was broken. And we remember as we dip it in the grape juice, his blood that covers our sins. We're going to worship God through songs as the band plays. Um, we're going to worship God through our giving. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. We're going to worship God through fellowship. We invite you to hang around after. Build one another up in your most holy faith. And we're going to worship God through prayer. And we will pray for you if you have a need. There will be elders or deacons in the back, and we'll pray if you have a need today. So let's, let's pray now. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your... You're working in our life. We thank you that our salvation is due to you, that you've started this work in our lives and that you will complete it to that final day of redemption, Lord. We thank you that you alone have the power to keep us in your care and to keep us in your love. And we pray that you would help us also, Lord, to remain and to keep ourselves in your love. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us. We thank you for the gospel that is the power to save us, Lord. Father, I pray if there are those here today who don't know you, that they wouldn't leave without knowing that, Lord, you will judge every action, every word, every deed. And it's only by the grace of Jesus on our behalf that we have a, a chance of standing before your presence with great joy and blameless. Father, draw them to yourself, we pray. We lift this day to you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.